Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two, Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. Today on this episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Clayton Walters. Clayton is Clayton Off-Road. He's the founder, got started in the 90s with with building parts. And we're going to find out from Clayton where he got started. Clayton, thank you for coming on board. Um, you're looking good. How you feeling? Good, good. It's 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 been I feel blessed this year. It's been a great, it's been a great year, despite of all the I know some people have had some rough times this year, but I feel really blessed that, that we We've been doing well this year. Feel good. We just had a big snowstorm today, and uh, I'm a little bit tired from all the snow blowing, but things are good. Um, it, it's good to be be here with you. Well, thank you for coming on board. Let's get started and jump right in. Where did you grow up? Let's let's give the uh, our audience, you know, the, the background. <laughs> I grew up in a little town called Prospect up in Connecticut. Um, it's a suburb of Waterbury, and uh, it was such a small. It was a small town. I think when I was growing up, there was only about ten thousand people, and we didn't even have high school. So I went to Waterbury, and you know, we were the farmers from Prospect, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was kind of funny. And so I kind of grew up on a. Uh, call it a half-ass farm you know my grandfather was an electrician my dad was a like he was a draftsman that was more of an engineering background designer and he was in the rolling mill industry so we were always like playing around with tractors and I had motorcycles and I always had those apart and I was fixing them and I can remember like playing around with wires and, and popping circuit breakers in the house all the time, you know? So I always had like a mechanical background, kind of felt gifted. I know a lot of, a lot of kids nowadays, they don't know what they want to do. They don't know what they want. And I just always had this knack. I feel blessed that I was always had a, an ability to do the mechanical stuff. So when I was in college, you know, I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to study, and I got recruited to play football for a Division II school right in, in New Haven. And so I was like, ah, I'm going to go play football. And 
oh, what am I going to study? And I was like, oh, I'll take engineering. My dad takes is an engineer. And so, uh, you know, I, I played around with that for three or four years on and off and have a, I have 105 credits and never finished my degree. I just, I just couldn't stand it's the end, going in the class and they're like teaching the theory about stuff and I'm just going like no what does it do I want stuff I can you know do something with how am I going to use this and and uh, I think about the, the straw that broke the camel's back because I went in for my first EE class and I was like oh this is going to be great and the professor starts by by putting a calculus formula up on the board and I'm like I'm out of here this this just isn't this isn't what I want to do, you know. And uh, but when I was in college, I went, my dad uh, worked for a company that built rolling mill equipment. So it was really awesome. I got to go in and uh, I went to work for a guy named Timmy Mosier, and he was a machinist. Um, you know, had his you know print. He was you know. I don't know whatever you kind of call it, but you know he had the the you got to go for the apprenticeship and stuff and so he just started you know teaching me how to run bridge ports and lathes and I was lucky we would get a, a pile of blueprints and we'd make all these parts and and we and we get to assemble the equipment and actually go install it at the customers and these were you know big you know million dollar projects and stuff and so I got a background in electrical and machining and welding and you know wiring and hydraulic lines and stuff like that and and then I, I left that company after a few years and I actually went to work for a, was a, like a second cousin. He's actually his dad and my dad were cousins. So I think they call it cousins once removed. And so I went to work for him. as just a fabricator building like equipment and stuff and for, for our own production in the plant. You know, I learned how to program PLCs and hydraulics and air controls and all kinds of stuff like that. And so I did that for a while and then I actually became the plant manager. So I was the plant manager, plant slash engineer. And I was there for quite a while. And then, you know, in 1997, I, uh, I bought a 95 Jeep Grand Cherokee. I got divorced that year and I started playing around on with a forum called Grand Cherokee America. And People were like, oh, wow, they're lifting these Grand Cherokees, you know. And so I said, oh, that's cool, you know. So I um, bought Pro Comp two-inch lift for my Grand Cherokee. And I was just like, it just rode and handled like shit. And I was like, oh, my God, this is awful. Like, it was just terrible. So then, like, you know, the next year I, I built my own. That was like probably the first thing. I built my own adjustable control arms. And there was this thing called a the front, to, you would take the front springs and put them in the rear and buy so you could get about three or four inches of lift. And I did that and had my Grand Cherokee was on 32s. And the first Grand Slam event I went to was was actually down in, at Big Dogs in Virginia. And first time I went down there, I like broke a rear axle, folded the, roll, the front control arms over and remember skipped it was running it. He's like, you got to build, things got to be built tough, you know, down. And I was like, all right. So, so um, I was always playing around with this Grand Cherokee America Forum. And I thought it was when like, there was a guy, Tony Curlis, who I think he works for ARB or he did after that, but, you know, he eventually 
lifted his grand Cherokee like six inches and had it on 35s and he ended up totaling it out. And I remember reading this article, how it wasn't feasible to lift your grand Cherokee six inches. And so lo and behold, I didn't believe anybody. And I, I, uh, I actually built, you know, a six inch lift kit, made my own control arms and I swapped in Wagoneer 44s at the same time. And I, I literally drove it the first time and went in my kitchen table and started crying because it was just drove and handled so poorly. <laughs> I was like, this is, I, my, my old girlfriend nicknamed it the squirrel because when you drove it down the road, it was like, you know, just back and forth in the road. So that was around 98 or 99, something like that. And I remember, uh, Rubicon Express came out with the first long arm kit for the TJ. And it was actually a guy I got to, he had like one of the first kits down at Big Dogs. And I looked at it and I was like, that's what I need on my Grand Cherokee. You know, you know, before that I was just making like rock rails and bumpers for the Grand Cherokees. And um, so I started designing this long arm. I called it a long arm upgrade kit, right? And so I put it on and it just, the handling and everything was just so much better. You know, no uh, rear axle steer, no, it just drove straight down the road. It was great. And then just the climbing ability of it to get, you know, you had to push the front tire up against something, the long arm would just climb up over it so much easier. So people started, are you going to sell this? And I'm like, ah, I don't know is playing around and so finally i like added up the cost and i'm like all right there's like 500 dollars in materials and i'm just gonna triple the cost of that and i went on the forum and i posted i i'll build this they're 1500 and i need 10 orders to go into production and in one week i had 10 checks in the mail and i was that was that was it i was off you know mm-hmm. and uh so the you know then from there it went to the I built the Cherokee, which was pretty much just the same arms, just a little bit different cross member. And then we we did the then we did the the WJ, which was the next generation of the Grand Cherokee. Um, I did a long arm on that, and that was kind of a funny story because on that Grand Cherokee America, you know, there was a, somebody made a post, and it's like the race for the first long arm WJ, and I'm. I go on there and I'm like, I don't know how much of a race it's going to be. My buddy Adam's coming up from New York on Friday and he's going to go home Sunday night with a long arm kit on his Jeep. And, you know, it was like, everybody was just laughing, you know, <laughs> it was so funny. Right? And I'm like, and sure enough, Monday morning, my buddy Adam's got pictures driving home. You know, you had his long arm kit on, you know, it was pretty cool. It was a, it was a good experience. I actually had, uh, when I did that first, that first initial sell of the, the Grand Cherokee long arm kits, I actually had three guys flew me to San Francisco and did three installs. And then when I released the WJ kit, I actually went to, uh, flew to Denver and had three installs to do there and uh, got to go snowmobiling with one of the guys because he was like manager at one of the resorts up there. So that was pretty cool. And then we kind of went into things backwards, you know. We like we did the I did the TJ long arm kit, the last that was the last, you know, and that was kind of a funny story. I was I was down at Big Dogs and there was this you know cute girl in a TJ and 
uh, she, she like I was kind of like trying to talk to her and she actually was friends with my buddy that was and uh, so my, my pickup line was you know I can put a long arm kit on that for you on your jeep <laughs> on the jeep <laughs> <laughs> yeah and she is she just kind of thought I was kidding and so we, we kind of like hung out at at the like the end of the, the raffle and everything and this and that and didn't think much of it she went home and and then monday morning i guess she did some research she called me up. she's like hey i want to talk to you and so uh yeah she she drove up from virginia and that put we put a tj long arm kit developed a tj long arm kit you know so that that was kind of the way it went and then um around 2000, 2003, I, I had a, a friend who was in a Jeep club at Adam, who's actually my business partner now. He, he was finishing up college. It's kind of, it's been a great relationship. He's, a, he's actually 17 years younger than me, but I was the best man at his wedding 10 years ago. And he was the best man at my wedding two years ago. So it's been a great story, but he was always, uh, he competed, you know, with his TJ and stuff. And uh, he, he had like some of the original rock crawler stuff on his truck, you know. We ended up swapping it all out for our stuff. And he was getting done with college. And he's like, I want to buy half your business. And I was like, yeah, you know. Finally, you know, I decided that like, well, you know, he, he, I was, I still have a full-time job. I was working plant manager, plant engineer at this company I was at, you know, I had been there like almost 15 years, you know? And uh, so finally I was like, all right, you know, I don't have the time to make this business grow. So this is the opportunity. So I kept working at my regular job and you know, he bought half the company. We, we didn't even have a, a phone or anything. Like we just, you know, there was no phone with an email address and a, and a website with no ordering, you know, you can order online. And so we, we gradually grew and grew, um, played around with, you know, traveled around a lot in the early days doing shows and stuff and uh, competing. And then, you know, we, we've been lucky. It's, 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 it's changed, you know, so now we're, we're pretty good with where we are, but that's, that's the way it all started. Just a one car garage actually is where I started in. And I put a portable garage up side of it and I had one of these quickie lifts and I could do installs out there. And, and then we eventually, you know, just, just grew and grew step, step by step. But it was, it was kind of funny. You know, I was like, thinking I was going to be rich really quick if I, you know, these kits only cost me $500 a piece and I, I sold 10 of them. I should have $10,000 in the bank and when I'm all done and when I got done, I had almost nothing in the bank because I invested about $2,500 in material or no, in equipment and then had to buy the, put $5,000 into inventory to, to make the next 10 kits. <laughs> I was like, where'd my money go? You know, but, uh, but it's, so that's kind of where everything happened with as far as getting things rolling, you know. One of the nice things is, is building it up that way, you get to learn a lot of the business aspects as well. When you, when you started small like that, and even with the 10 kits, you know, you, you started at a spot where you're still in your garage when you were 
back to being broke because you now invested in the next 10 kits and you bought equipment and tools and everything else you need. All of a sudden it was, you really started a business. Right. And then the other biggest, like going about the business thing is like that, that's probably one of was my biggest weakness was just not being business savvy. I kind of really made an effort over the last three years to kind of try to change that. But, you know, like the first couple of years, like, you know, when, once Adam bought into the business, we like, you know, he bought, when he bought half the business, I had done $80,000 like that year out of my one car garage. Right. And then we doubled the business for like three or four years in a row. But I can remember the first couple of years, like we're taking like a, say a $30,000 salary. Right. And we was an LLC. So when you're LLC, you have to take, you know, the profits personally, right? So what people don't realize is that, you know, so I think one year the, like, our accountant goes to us, he's like, uh, well, you guys owe like $30,000 each in taxes. And we're like, what? And they're like, he goes, yeah, you had, you know, you had a profit and you, you have to claim the income from it. And we're like, we don't have that kind of money in you in the bank. Like, you know what? So what it was, was, you know, all of your profits went to putting in stock. Right. But the, you're like, I can't send the government a bunch of control arms or coil springs, <laughs> you know, but so you, so you, you know, you, all your profit that you got, you put into inventory or invested in machinery. <laughs> and then you want you to pay tax on it. I was like, holy shit, you know. So that was kind of a, a big learning curve there. But it, it takes a while. It, it's, 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 you know, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. You know, this year has been very successful for us. So, you know, we have plans to buy it. We're going to buy the 10, it's a 10,000 square foot building. I think we're going to add, we're going to buy it, add on um, 3,000 square feet and keep renting out half of it. Feel like I always had, you know, like I've had this unique ability going from that when I worked at that manufacturing company. With they, we, my original job, we were, it was a polystyrene plant, right? So it's, it was the old dunk folk the old Dunkin' Donuts foam cups, right? That's polystyrene, but we did it on a bigger volume. If you could imagine that stuff's about one pound per cubic foot. And I would expand and ship about 25,000 pounds of that a day, right? Wow. (laughs) So I had about 75 people working for me, two or three shifts a day. It It was a lot. We always would... Like we wouldn't just go out and buy our own equipment. Like we had these laminating lines to glue foil backed craft paper to the foam to make a leveling board for the retrofit siding industry. And we we built all our own equipment to do it, you know. So I I learned that thing that like, you know, like for instance, a couple of years ago. Uh, that's probably like four years ago. Now we, we changed the design of our track bars. We started drilling and tapping the end of, instead of welding an insert in, because we get the diameter a little bit smaller, use a thicker wall. And instead of going out and buying a, you know, 40 or $50,000 CNC machine, I bought an old turret lathe for 3,500 bucks and it works, you know, and it cranks out track bars and, or, 
know, I had an old milling machine and nothing we do is really that critical, you know, and, and when the CNC control was crapped out, I was able to retrofit, uh, you know, a new centroid control system on it, right? That instead of, you know, again, saving a lot of money. And as far as the, you know, so going like back to that story of like, you know, three or four years ago, I just was like, you know, we were stumbling along and, you know, we were making a living and decent money, but we weren't making what we wanted to. And um, I just said, we got to do something different. So like we started with, I hired a, a friend of ours that it was, a, it was a girl that we knew from the Jeep in, and she was in marketing all our life. And we tried to have her do some stuff for us from home, but that didn't work out. And then just by chance, I, I ended up hiring this marketing person and that's made all the difference in the world in my mind. Um, that was like the first thing of the business thing. I said, you know, Adam, we just, we got to do something different. We got to try to try something, you know? And then I started, you know, doing some research about like where we're spending all of our money and, and where we can save. And part of it was, was just looking at the, the joints and the bushings, you know, the Curry Johnny joints, it's an amazing product. You know, it's, I think almost all those type of a joints are spinoffs of that, but like up here in the Northeast and in the rust belts, right. They're very susceptible to getting rusty and creaking and popping. So that Red Ranger approached us about using their gyro bushing, which is a dual durometer bushing. It's maintenance free and it's a lot less expensive. So we did some research, we tested them out. And so we switched over to that. So we were able to come out with lower cost kit, lift kit, right? But, it, and plus add some qualities that people want. Like nowadays, not everybody's that hardcore rock crawler, right? There's the overlanding, you know, weekend warrior type stuff, right? They don't want to be under the rebuilding Johnny joints and greasing them and stuff, right? So that was a big savings and a big success for us. And then I started looking at, I found out about a program in the state of Connecticut. They, they have this, it's a Connecticut, it's the manufactured innovation program. And uh, so what they do is they'll loan or they'll give a grant to any biz, manufacturing business in Connecticut 50% of a project up to $50,000, right? Over a lifetime. So I did a study on, um, we were spending about $130,000 a year having our parts laser cut and bent. So I figured out <laughs> that, cause I can get a weight out of SolidWorks and I added in some scrap and I figured out that I was only using about 50,000 pounds of steel, which is about $25,000 worth of steel. Steel's around 50 cents a pound, you know? So I was like, I did it. I did a little bit of a study. I sent patterns, flat patterns to my steel company. It's just, and I would do my own bending. And I figured out that I could save about $50,000 a year. So I bought a I bought a CNC press break and started doing my own bending, right? And I was able to get the state to give me $26,000 towards that new machine, right? And then another bottleneck we had was just um, R&D time, right? When I had to develop a part in SolidWorks, 
by the time I sent it to my laser cutter, had it, well, that was part of the whole thing about getting a press break, right? I could, I, so now I had the press break so I could get a flat pattern, but it still took two or three weeks to get a flat pattern. And you paid like through the nose, right? You paid a hundred dollars for a $10 part, right? To get a couple of them made. And I couldn't really afford, you know, laser cutters are very expensive. They have a lot of maintenance. Um, so I ended up buying a, a, a plasma table, just a, a star lab from out in Minnesota, just uses a hypertherm torch and I is able to make my patterns close enough to test my, you know, my products. And it really, so that like my R and D time went to almost nothing, right? I could design something, cut it. Yep. It works good. And then send it off to production. Like, and then I would have it laser cut. And, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Like, uh, uh, Dan down at Motobill is actually, <laughs> he's actually doing all of my laser cutting for me now. He, uh, he was always posting up on Facebook and I was like, he actually, you know, Connecticut's an expensive state, you know, electricity and stuff, but you know, he, he's actually doing this, all my laser cutting and shipping it up here cheaper than I can buy it from my steel <laughs> supplier. That's, you know, a half hour down the road, you know? So it works out good, you know. Um, I think we're gonna, you know, we've we we have a line of skid points and stuff for the TJs and the JKs, and we, you know, we I was looking into developing them for the JL and the JT, and I think we're just gonna just team up with Motobilt and just like start using their stuff, you know, rather than me spending. You know, <laughs> hundreds of hours developing something and then they're going to be cutting it for me anyway. You know, I might just try something like that, you know, so. So you'll, you'll relabel or just in-house no, sell theirs? Just no, they'll become part of your kit. What's that? So their so, product will become no, we'll part just, of your kit? So we're, we're kind of like China this year is kind of a, one of our theories is just like, you know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting year. And this is how I know that like I finally all these years to get some recognition, you know, TerraFlex actually approached us to sell their Falcon shocks with our lift kits. You know, uh, we've been Fox dealers for years, you know, and they actually, I met, I forget this last thing, Mark was there. I met him out at Terra de Sol one year and, He's like, hey, you guys gotta start selling our stuff, you know. And I was like, all right, and you know, so he hooked me up, and we got started. You know, he didn't even we didn't have a buy-in and stuff. So it's like a little things that happen in the industry that make you feel feel good about it. But no, I think I think what we're trying to do, I think, is just focus on our suspension components, and you know, if we can upsell, like we sell a lot of lift kits, we sell all our lift kits without shocks. Like we don't have a package because. We know that people like to do different things, but we do sell a lot of kit, lift kits without shocks, right? Because, oh, people might, they shop around, they can get them here. If they can get them from Quadratech or they can get them from Northridge or they can. So we're, we're going to just try to attempt to, you know, add more value to our kits of like, okay, hey, you know, you bought a lift kit. Well, you know, we can get you a deal on the shocks and, and we also have skid plates that we can, you know, you could do, you could sell too, or like in, instead of giving away, 
free shipping and 10% off, right? We can, we can afford to give people like a deal on the shocks, right? Oh, if you buy a lift kit, we'll give you a free pet, you know, set of shocks that, or, or we can give you 20% off or 25% off the shocks, right? So it's bringing in more money. And I've always been a firm believer in, I mean, I, I remember back in the early days, it, like people were, there was no stealing and theft going on with, with people's designs and stuff. And, you know, when you look at the knockoffs of, you know, the Johnny joint and stuff like that, I've always, we've always used, like I started using Curry Johnny joints when they had just come out. I was waiting for them. You know, I remember calling up there to, tr to try to get, I don't know, it's like a, somebody salesman's like, oh, John developed this new thing. And they're, you know, they're, they're like three or four weeks like I had some of the first Johnny joints. I was when they just had the barrels and I had to weld a, an adjuster to them and start using them, you know, and we've had the opportunity. We've been approached by people to, you know, they could manufacture them for us. And we've just, I'm just a firm, firm believer in letting, you know, Fox make shocks. They know what they're doing. Like I want to use them, you know, same thing with Falcon. And we sell Bill Steens too. Um, you know, the same thing with the Johnny joints. And, and, you know, and then we had to come out with, you know, our, that, you know, dual durometer gyro joint. We just, we did that from a, just from a cost standpoint to offer the consumer a little bit more, the other choice, right? The same thing. We've, we still sell a lot of JKS disconnects with our kits because that was their product and they did it. You know, things, things of that nature, you know, never really got into the, you know, like making our own stuff like that. You know, the JLs and the, and the G gladiators, right. Cause there's so many Rubicons out there. Like so many people don't need disconnects anymore. So, so we make our own links, but they're fixed, right. They're not disconnects, you know, right. Um, things of that nature, but. Um, Let's back up and touch on some things that you mentioned and just, went right on into the business. You played football at division two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What, I, uh, what position did you play? I was an outside linebacker. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. An OLB. Excellent. Um, and I take it you, uh, you must've played the farmer kids that, that came into Waterbury were, were better players than the city kids. Is that what it was? Uh, well, I started playing football when I was 10 years old uh, in, in that little town I was in. And it was it was very difficult to get enough kids to put a team on the field. But um, and then I when I played in high school in Waterbury, you know, we didn't have a very good team and stuff, but um, it, it was still fun. But when I went away to college, that was a rude awakening with football. You know, I was <laughs> I, I went I went away to football camp you know you started like two or three weeks before school and I was like I think I was probably weighed about I don't know six feet tall you know 185 pounds or something 190 pounds and you know bench press like 300 pounds and you know ran like a 5040 and I got to the camp and there's these these linebackers, they're, they're six foot three. They weigh 220 pounds. They bench press 450 pounds and they run like a four, eight 40, you know? And I was like, holy shit, you know, 
people think, oh, big dumb football players. Well, it's not it's not true anymore, right? <laughs> like those guys, they're fast, they're strong, but they they just could not play football, like you know. But um, it was that was. Um, but I'd have to say, like as far as like discipline and toughness and stuff, I learned that early on in in Pop Warner. We had a really kind of a hard ass coach that you know really pushed people and made them work and um but uh college was just a rude awakening you know three three practice sessions a day and then films at night and i went there it was division three school and they changed division two they recreated they recruited 80 freshmen there was 80 of us freshmen team right and so I went on, you know, I went there steady for a couple of years and then I started doing co-op and I petered out. But by like senior year, there was only four of us left from those original 80 kids in that class, you know, and it was funny. Like we lived in, it was crazy. We lived in a, the coach, we had an apartment building that was adjacent to the campus that was just football and hockey players <laughs> and it, it was it was not pretty it was it was bad it was bad and like after two years I said I, I gotta get out of here I'm not gonna live you know it was pretty crazy <laughs> but um it, it was a it was a good experience but we used to have this you know the saying like there was a be like in camp that freshman year, kids would just disappear. We would get up in the morning. Where's Johnny? <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> You'd be like, so there was a saying, it was like, don't let the night rider get you. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> they would be gone. It was like nobody would ever hear from them again. <laughs> so they would just end up quitting school or whatever and be gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything is gone. You know, never hear from them again. I had a landscape construction company back in the uh, mid eighties. And I would hire these guys out of, out of high school during the summer. And most of them were ball players. You know, I wanted athletes because a little more discipline, you know, they weren't afraid of hard work, supposedly. I can't tell you how many hours I got out of kids that I never had to pay because they'd come out for three, four days and then they'd leave at lunch and I'd never see them again. And they were too embarrassed to come get, they're three or four days worth of pay. If they all showed up in the morning together, like four guys in a, in a, in their car, I knew that by lunch they'd be gone. They wouldn't come back from lunch. It just, it just would happen that way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, all the years I've worked, all the people I've had work for me. I mean, I can count probably on two hands of all the people that actually like, said, I want, I want to do more. I want to make more. I want, you know, what do I need to do? You know? Oh, it's tough. I always said like, you know, it's like everybody wants a job and nobody wants to work, you know? And more so nowadays than 20 years ago. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm blessed with like, I, my two older kids are both very successful and it's just, you know, I hear other people just, tough stuff you know so but I was probably I was pretty my daughter was pretty easy she she was always straight a student 
she struggled. Actually, she struggled later in life. My son, so my son was the one that had growing up was tough on him. And, um, but he's doing really good now too. So he actually just bought a house around the corner from me. So I can literally walk to his house, you know, so it's That's nice. Awesome. Yeah. So what's the future like? Well, we're finally at the point where we have some money and some capital behind us to, to take the next step of like, you know, Adam and I just have been adamantly involved in, you know, the data and the operations of the company. It's probably been not good, um, but we just never really had the money to go out and, you know, hire somebody to fill every position. So we're, we're gradually, we're at the point where we feel like we can invest in people and, you know, not have, you know, if it takes a year for our return on investment, I think of people like employees, the same as a piece of equipment, right? You're going to hire them. And especially if you're they're like in a key role, say marketing or something like that, right? Or sales, it's going to take a while to get your, them to, to, to earn their keep. So we have to, you know, and I still all, we, we need more help to get Adam and I away from the day-to-day operation so he can fo- focus more on like, you know, dealers and, and promoting sales and stuff like that. And uh, I still do all of the R&D work and, and stuff like that. It, it's a huge amount of time that it's funny. It's like, you know, years ago, you just, you develop a product, you snap a couple pictures, you post it up on the forum and, good to go right now it's like all right model it in solid work get the drawings done get the you know get it coded for powder coating and this and that and up on the website and the instructions and like the the amount of time it takes to get a product to markets is a lot right so but i so we need to get some more horsepower in that so that i can start focusing on you know some other projects like in the horizon we're you know, I was working on the the um, JL long arm kit before this COVID thing hit, and then I'm just we've been so busy that I haven't gotten back to it. But we're that's my next project. We just finished up. We revamped our TJ short arm kits. We always we had like three levels of it. And we just made one. We made our own track bar for the rear brackets and stuff for shock shifters. So we're going to be releasing that shortly. Um, There's still a ton of products in the Jeep market that I'd like to get onto. And, you know, people talk to me about, you know, the new Bronco coming out and stuff like that. And I, I don't know that I'll get into that or have the time for it. But I do, you know, like from my background for building industrial equipment and stuff, I enjoy that and I do some of it a little bit, but from a business standpoint, like you you see all these fabrication and machine shops, right? That they don't have a product line, right? That they're selling. So it makes it difficult, right? So, but for me, I have a product line that's supporting all this equipment and stuff. So if I could do out of industry work or get back into building machinery and stuff like that, kind of diversify my, stuff a little bit. I, I would enjoy doing that a little bit. So we'll see, we'll see what happens right now. We're so cramped with space. Kind of one of the big things of getting into that is to just, 
you know, uh, getting more space to do that kind of thing. But uh, primarily, uh, I, I still love designing the Jeep products, and it's 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 always been a passion of mine. Going back to when I was a kid, I had this little tiny white Jeep that ran on batteries that was modeled after a CJ2A, and it was four wheel drive, and it could just climb over anything. And that was that was kind of like the start of the whole Jeep thing for me. And I bought a I bought a brand new 1984 CJ7. It was a leftover in 1985, and I still remember it vividly. The sticker on it was ten thousand dollars even. That was the sticker price, you know. And I, I love that Jeep. And the joke is, I I traded it in on a minivan, you know. <laughs> but I loved that minivan. It was awesome, you know. So, but that's where we're going, uh, you know. And then. The whole other thing of like, yeah, you know, I always kind of joke around about retiring. I'm, I am going to be. I know, I know, I look like I'm in my 40s, but I'm actually going to be 58 in January. And uh, you're still a young kid. Yeah, I, I, I say, um, I don't know whether my 25 year old mind is having issues with my 58 year old body, or my 58 year old body is having issues with my 25 year old mind. But um, no, I. I yeah, I don't know that I would actually ever really retire. I do. We stopped doing installation work and custom fab work about almost five years ago when Ryan Fuqua left and he bought, um, he actually bought out Larry Nichols out of Vegas 4x4. Okay. Now, Ryan, Ryan was a kid like that used some of my parts way back in the day. He was my shop, you know, uh, lead guy for for like four or five years and you know it's kind of funny it's ironic it's like you know he he went out to hammers with me and that's where he met Larry Nichols and he ended up you know Larry wanted to get out and retire and Ryan ended up moving out there it worked out Ryan's doing very well um we're still pretty close he's supposed to be actually coming out for Christmas but um yeah he he, he just wasn't he wasn't like a production guy, you know, like he, he, he just didn't want to be doing the same, you know, production. He, he was more of a hands-eye like installation. So that's why he likes, he's doing very well with Vegas. I'm happy for him there, but uh, it's been good. But um, I do miss that install work or fabrication or building stuff. And, um, but it was very, very stressful when you're trying to run production and do it at the same time. I, I joke around with my wife is like, I, someday, you know, I want to, I want to have a shop at my house where I can kind of do some of that stuff on the side a little bit here and there, but you never know. But I, as far as retiring, I don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to have to like that whole thing of like, you know, I think when I'm ready, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's depends, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, you buy that motorhome. I'm never really going to have to retire from Clayton Off-Road, right? I'm going to be able to go out, be wherever I am. I can promote the business. I can do design and R&D work. And, you know, so so it, that's I feel I feel blessed about that. It should be good. Excellent. So is there anything that we haven't hit on? You said you've done a couple of other outside of the industry podcasts lately. Is there anything that you learned in those or questions that they threw out at you that you'd want to discuss? 
No, it's 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 um. Well, it was funny at the end of the show that they did a couple. It's going to be up online. You'll be able to watch it. But um, no, they they were more interested in the business end of it, you know, more than the story of it, you know. So that's that's it. But some of the, you know, I just start when you were talking and you started about the history of it. Like, you know, I, I laugh. Some of the best times I had was like, I remember going down to the Wee Rock in Tennessee that, <laughs> when your son was there, I don't know if you were there. And it, they had the, the wet t-shirt contest that turned into the, the wet booby contest. The girls were ripping their shirts off. Or, uh, and uh, <laughs> So I have a good story about that. We get done with that Tennessee event. I get an, an email from some lady that was very upset that her... <laughs> like five-year-old or six-year-old son came home and said, I saw boobies. <laughs> and I'm, and she goes, I'm really disappointed. I thought this was a family type event. And, you know, I'm really disappointed in that your, your events are not family as you express that they were. And I responded to her and said, well, let me explain something to you. The event ended at, one o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night. Right. Shenanigans didn't start until two. So there was a two hour period where your son, where your, your son could have gone home with your husband. If your husband was interested in going home, if your son saw boobies, it was because he was there after two o'clock in the, in the morning with your husband. So I think it's more of your husband that you need to be disappointed in instead of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that was that was funny, and I I got to see I broke a rim and Randy Torbett fin- welded it up for me. That was funny, you know. But yeah, it goes back a long way. You know, Kyle with you know at Paragon and you know and Badlands and all that stuff and. But it's funny. That's funny. The only, the other, the other thing, like I always, I laugh. I look. I, well, I don't laugh. I, I always, um, I built Eric Miller's first Jeep that he competed in We Rock with. He, it was a thousand funny story. He like, you know, he, he comes up. He, he has you know curry axle ships at a shop and doing long arm kit and. I built him a roll cage and 35 inch, you know, all the tires, everything show like that gold Jeep and like, got to have it done. He's going to Moab with it. And he, so he comes up and we're like finishing up, putting the thing finally together. I'm leaving for Moab is, is, you know, and uh, he leaves for Moab and or no, what the, I guess the funniest part was he's like, so we load the Jeep on his trailer and he's like, He's like, he goes, oh, my dad will send you a check. And I was like, oh, oh all right. You know, like, it was like, you know, you know, $18,000 or $20,000 worth of work. And he's like, I was figuring he was going to, you know, give us a credit card or something, you know. He's like, oh, my dad will send you a check. And Adam and I are standing there going like, well, all right. <laughs> I hope he does. And he did. <laughs> But yeah, so, but you know, he get he calls us. He's out in Moab, and that's where 
the picture was um he actually made the cover of some magazine with it when he was out there with it but he's like he calls me up he's like like two or three days he's been out a mob he's like the rear end is making like this really bad squealing noise and i was like really i was like yeah and like, yeah, we probably forgot to put oil in it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, he's like rushing around trying to get out of there. And, you know, and uh, yeah, we never put any oil in, you know, in our rear axle, you know. And so it was kind of funny. Well, at least but. it didn't seize up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, I think it may have seized up and he thought, like, well, let's put some oil in it. Maybe it'll be all right. You know, <laughs> and then I had to fix it for him. But yeah, so he, him and I go way back. It's so funny. Like we comp- compete at Paragon. And no, I admire him. I, I like, I never ever imagined like him taking, you know, that to that extreme with the stuff, you know. And he, the first year we raced in 2010 out there, right? He, so I had no way of like I qualified at Rouse Creek. I had no way of getting out there, like, you know, and and doing it. And I had my old the buggy I used to we rock compete with. That's what I raced in, right? And so Eric, so what happened was we had I had a 40-foot aluminum trailer. So Eric actually came and picked up my buggy. And that's what he took out to race the first time at KOH. You know, he he pulled my buggy out from so I could race, and he put his in. You know, so uh, yeah, we go back a long ways. Oh, we, you know, we, I still get you know his Christmas cards from him and stuff. I actually, I, I was kind of disappointed. I didn't get to go to. I got invited to his wedding. I didn't go. I didn't. I didn't. It didn't work out to go, but. Uh, I haven't seen him. I always I touch base with him once in a while. He has his new baby now and stuff. So we got the cards, but yeah, it's it's just, it's uh it's it's something to see him what he did with that stuff, you know. So yeah, pretty phenomenal. I remember the first time he showed up to one of my rock crawls, his dad had to sign his waiver for him. Yeah. Because yeah. he wasn't of age. So yeah. <laughs> I know. I always tell them, I say, I'm, I admire your ambition, ambition, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, you know, so, so. So you competed, did you compete during Paragon the day, or not Yeah, The days in Paragon? Adam had a TJ that we competed in at Paragon. Right. And then we went to a couple, we went to Jellicoe twice and competed, you know, but when we went down to Tennessee, that was in my unlimited buggy, you know. And then I competed once at We Rock at Rouse Creek and then once in Tennessee. And then, yeah, that was the – so I – yeah, I won. I was the unlimited champ at Rouse Creek for three years in a row in that buggy. And then and it's – so so was that? Yeah, 2009 – I went out and I watched the King of the Hammers and that's when Adam came, he's called, we should go race. We should go race that, you know, at Rouse Creek, the, the, you know, the qualifier there. And I was like, I had no intentions of, I never raced or anything, you know, I didn't even have a pit crew. I went down there and we, uh, I had air shots on my fourth stock four liter, right? Buggy. <laughs> so, it was so funny. We so Adam was my co-driver, 
And uh, we're, all right, he's like, we should go do it. I was like, ah, what the hell, we'll go do it, you know? And, uh, we, you know, we take off and I was like fifth or sixth off the line. And I don't know, I went around and like, there was this one big hill, Jotters. And like, there, when I got to it, the first lap, I was like, I think I was like one of the first people to it. I got there and went right up it and around and um, come back on the next lap. And it's like, there's like a big line of people waiting to go up it. So I was out at King of the Hammers. I watched those guys race and they, you know, just go wrap. Uh, so I, I pull off to the right and I start passing people on the right. And Adam's going, he goes, what are you doing? You can't do this. I'm like, no, we, we can do this. We're racing, you know? So we just like go and I, I go hammered up the hill, bounce off a few people and keep going, you know? And like, we didn't even have radios in our house. I, I was winning the race the whole time. And I had no idea that I was leading <laughs> race, right? And uh, Bruce, Bruce at Rouse Creek is telling me, he's like, Dave Cole was like so upset. He's like, he's got to be short course and he's cheating. Because, like, you know, because like Adam Woodley's there in his V8, Will Carter's there in his, like, and I'm just like, but like everybody was getting all those hill climbs, they couldn't get them up, get up them. They were so muddy and messy, you know? And uh, <laughs> so the, the joke of that whole race is finally, on the, the I pulled into the pit on the last lap and I'm like, fuck it, I'm getting out. I got to piss. And uh, took out, got out, get, took a plate. Like Adam's go, ah, we're, we're going to qualify. Don't worry about it. And like, we get picking, we go again. And, I lost that race by 19 seconds. <laughs> so they're like, oh, I lost my balls. It's like, you lost that race. That was an expensive piss. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so then I went, and then in 2010, I went out and raced the hammers for the first time. And then I I was like, that then that was right before then my little what my little baby, my girl was born, right? She was born in April. So we raced. And I sold my buggy to Adam and I just kind of haven't really done anything. I had, a, I had a pile of parts to build something new for like 10 years. And finally I just got rid of it all. But my aspirations are to try to, we, when we buy this building and I have some more rooms to set up a new you know, place to build something. I want to, I want to, I miss doing the competing and going, you know, to those events a little bit. I'd really love to, uh, just be able to leave a buggy parked out west somewhere like at Ryan's in Vegas, you know, four by four, just leave it there and fly back and forth and be able to compete a little bit, you know, would be that would be fun to do again. So we'll see. But uh you know the rock crawling scene is exploding again. Yeah. Especially I, I, on the West Coast. Yeah, I um I just don't have, you know, if I wanted to like the ultra four stuff is cool and stuff, but I don't have the time for it. Right. I, I just don't have the time for it. You know, uh, I, I would love to, I would love to go race there one more time with, but you know, like I think if I ever do that, that's kind of a bucket list thing. I would just try to find somebody. I, all right. I'm, how much is it going to cost me to have this race car at the lake bed? I need a pit crew, everything. I'm just want to come get in the car race and then, you know, that 
that would be the, the, you know, that would be the only way I would do it. I just don't have the time to do anything other than that, you know? So, but, but yeah, the, the rock crawling, I miss, you know? Um, so it'll happen someday. (laughs) We'd love to see you back out there. Yeah. Clayton, I want to say thank you very much for coming on board and sharing your story with us. Um, I think I pulled out some good things there, especially at the end. I appreciate all the stuff in the business because I know there's a lot of guys out there that have started or are at the point where you are when you started. You know, they're, yeah. they're working out of their garage. They're, they've created a lift kit or done something, you know, a piece mm-hmm. of product for themselves. And they, they just don't know where to go with it. And every time I talk to somebody like that, I said, you know what? find one person to buy it, then that person will tell somebody and somebody else will buy it. And eventually, you know, maybe you can be in the industry as well, but you know, it's oh. perseverance. It's, you know, you gotta, you gotta stick to it. Yeah. The, the, one of the biggest things, and this is kind of interesting was like probably the guy that got me to, I had some products I was building for myself and I remember this is the first time I talked to Tom Woods when he was still at six dates. He said to me, he goes, do you own anything? And I was like, no, I just got divorced. And he's like, incorporate and run bear. He said, he goes, first of all, you know, they have to prove negligence for you to be sued. He goes, that's one thing. He goes, secondly, if you don't have anything, nobody's going to get a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) and you don't have anything to lose you know so i was like okay yep. and uh yeah tom and i go back a long ways too he's funny he's anything well, else nope i think that's it so again thank you so much for uh for sharing your your story and we'll uh i'll get this edited and it'll be out in a few weeks and I'll let you know when we're going to air it. All right. Awesome. Good Good being here. I'm glad you uh, got in touch with me. And hopefully uh, we'll get to see you at some point. Thank you. We'll talk to you uh, down the road. I appreciate it. All right. Great. Okay. Great. Thanks, Rich. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram. And share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.